Let's pray. Father, just ask that as we look at your word, that you'll just challenge us, that you'll just point us to Jesus. You'll give clarity, that you'll give understanding, and that ultimately your spirit would be here just to speak words that cannot be spoken by any man. So just be with us, be in our, our congregation, be in this place this morning, and may we just glorify you as we speak through your word. Amen. Good morning. Where is Paul now? Not Paul Mullis, I know where he is. Quick recap. <coughs> For the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at the accounts of Paul, the apostle, as he's been going through courts, prison, trial, and on goes the list. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he spent a week with Christians, um, just spending time with them and worshipping at the temple. And then in chapter 21 of the book of Acts, certain Jews identified him in the temple and stirred up the whole city of Jerusalem against him. They would have had him beaten to death, other than the fact that the Romans got word of it and they arrived to save him. Paul spoke to the crowd. They wanted him death and probably still would have put him to death had it not been for the fact that Paul announced to the Roman centurion that he, in fact, was a Roman citizen himself. This commander, this Roman commander, then called the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, together, where they, again, beat Paul, accused him a little bit further, and uh, Paul ultimately split the group by talking about resurrection, which was a deeply polarizing theological topic for the Sanhedrin. Last week, Ryan spoke to us about the atrocious account of uh, Acts 23, where certain Jewish leaders decided to plot against Paul, vowing to take his life. A plot that was undone by one well-placed teenager. How God was in the little things, working towards his great end. At the end of chapter 23, this Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, has heroically saved Paul from the mob, and with a small army, sent him to the governor of Judea, whose name is Marcus Antonius Felix. History records that he was the governor of Judea from 52 to 58 AD. He's based in Caesarea. And it's up to him now to make the decision. Paul has spent a lot of the last couple of chapters being beaten and being passed from one person to another, which I think that makes him a first century cricket ball. Today, we're in Acts chapter 24, looking at the what happened next. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further... I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all of these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. After five days, the high priest that we encountered a couple of weeks ago with some high-ranking Jewish officials and a hotshot lawyer named Tertullus, make their way down to where Paul is to meet with Governor Felix and finally to put this matter of nuisance Paul to bed. This matters to the Jewish leaders. They've sent their best, their hitmen. 
They want to, want to finally see the end to this whole gospel message thing. They've had a few attempts at dealing with Paul. They've tried to kill him with a mob. They've tried to kill him by assassination. Neither of those have worked. And now their approach is going to be to try to use the Roman courts. Let's set Rome against them. And I have no doubt that they think that if they can prove Paul to be a lawbreaker, to have him jailed or maybe even killed by the Romans, not only will they have dealt with Paul, but they'll have given a mighty blow to the church. It sets a precedence for other church leaders to be taken, tried, and sentenced just like Paul. Fear would ripple out through the church. And so the prosecution begins with a sickening act of flattery. Oh, Felix, such peace, such reform, such foresight, such gratitude. Kind of makes you want to throw up when you're reading it. In reality, Felix is recorded to be an ex-slave who had risen through the ranks and become a man with a real knack for cruelty and barbarism. He had not dealt wisely with the Jewish people at all. And there was in the area kind of tense peace. But actually his actions had only kindled a desire for revolt amongst the Jewish people. And that was going to pan out in the future. There had been almost no reforms whatsoever in Jerusalem under his guidance. And there was certainly no gratitude amongst the Jews. They say that flattery gets you anywhere. It's not true. What we are called to be are people of honesty and integrity. Encouragers of others, but faithful and lovers of the truth. Google, which is the new dictionary, defines flattery as excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interest. And that's exactly what we see here. Scripture says nothing good about flattery. It says in Romans 16 about those who cause division by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. Paul himself wrote in Thessalonians. And he spoke about him and the apostles saying, We never used flattery, nor did we put a mask on to cover up greed. Clearly, he's saying, the use of flattery is basically just lying. It's just an act. Now, clearly this doesn't mean that we don't give compliments. Husbands should compliment wives and vice versa. We should compliment our brothers and sisters in the church. We should encourage, we should build up. We are here to build up those around about us. But we don't use this approach. Whether in church, home, business, wherever we happen to be, we are to be genuine, we are to be honest, and we're not to use flattery in a way which is manipulating people or situations. So, Felix, now that we've buttered you up, hear our version of events. And so the accusations come thick and fast. He's a troublemaker. He's stirring up riots. He's a leader of the Nazarenes. He's a desecrator of the temple. First of all, notice the approach here used. Tertullus, he's no idiot. He tries to phrase things in ways that would be a violation to the Roman law. The Romans are, after all, in control, and the Jewish people don't have many rights in terms of putting people to death. The Romans aren't really interested in matters of theology or anything like that. So he's, all, he's basing all of his accusations on the Roman law, phrasing it in ways that would be of interest to a Roman governor. He's stirring up riots. He's a troublemaker. He's looking to start an insurrection against Rome. These are the kinds of things that Felix would care about, keen to keep his tentative peace. Now, Paul has been involved in quite a lot of riots, and trouble does seem to follow him around quite a lot. 
But we find from scripture that he's never the instigator of these things. He's always a victim of the hatred of the Jewish leaders. And not only is Paul starting trouble here, but he's starting trouble worldwide. There's a kind of hidden compliment in there. Such as his influence in the world that, that the church is causing problems all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. And that is a phrase, it's a derogatory expression that was used for the Christians. Rooted in this idea that Jesus was from this squalid towner of Nazareth. From where nothing good ever comes. But the implication here is actually that Christianity is spread through the world causing trouble wherever it has gone. Now, a lot of it is really a theological issue. But Tertullus is trying to turn this as Paul, at the helm of this church, are doing nothing but antagonizing, instigating trouble and causing nuisance wherever they are. And that would strike a nerve with Felix, who probably, around the Jerusalem area, regularly has to deal with small sects and and, um, different faiths sprouting up all over the place and causing problems. Now, we know that none of this is true. And it is noticeable that the one thing that is lacking from from the prosecution statement is any form of evidence or any actual witnesses. It's just a series of accusatory statements. What Churchill has probably hoped for was this idea of by examining him yourself, Felix. And the implication there really is, Felix, get your scourge, get your whip, and beat it out of him. Whip him until he admits to everything. Now what Churchill, the lawyer, probably didn't know was that Felix was already aware that, that Paul was a Roman citizen. Scourging him was not really an option. It's a shocking prosecution, really. It's wild, it's vague statements, there's no evidence, there's no witnesses, there's no real conviction to it at all. But within the narrative, there are greater points. Firstly, why did this message stir up so much trouble? Well, the gospel that Paul and the church was taking around the area is never going to make people feel comfortable. It wasn't supposed to. The message is in itself offensive. Paul's message is one of righteousness. And we're going to see this later on. Ultimately, the message says, you and I, we, these church leaders, these Jews, they lacked righteousness. We're sinful and we do wrong. And God is a God of righteousness who cannot look upon unrighteousness. We are below the standard we need to be and none of our actions bring us up to God's standard. That's what that video was about. I was planning to wrap my entire sermon as well, but I'm not going to bother anymore. We're below the standard we need to be. But this message was not favorable to the Jewish leaders. They were all about action. Follow the law. Cleanse yourself. Give tithes, give offerings, give sacrifices. Tick the boxes and you can work yourself up into God's favor. This message of Paul's was, there's nothing that you can do to get yourself closer to God's righteousness. You will always fall short. They hated it. And they hated Paul. Secondly, in retaliation to the message, back one, sorry, just... Um, In retaliation to the message, we see lies, exaggeration, and twisting of facts. And this is exactly what the world will do to those who speak about the gospel. We have to remind ourselves every now and again 
that those who are against us are empowered by the father of lies. And he's not someone who plays fair. If the devil can undermine the gospel by twisting and contorting situations, then he will do just that. If he can undermine the church by presenting it in a way which is contrary to scripture, he will do exactly that. And we see that today as well. Aren't we told that Christians hate gay people? Aren't we told that somebody who's transgender will never be seen by Christians as equal? Now these are not things which we find in scripture. Sadly, through the generations, the church has at times been guilty of propagating some of these issues and problems. And Ryan quite rightly challenged us last week that we as a church are to show God's love, not our judgment. But we can't be surprised when the world, powered by the devil, tries to undermine us and twist and lie about us and about our message. What do we do? Well, what did Paul do? When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. And you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they found anything against me. Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Notice that Paul is not interested in starting his defense with flattery or buttering up the judge. He just simply admits that he stands in the presence of a seasoned and a practiced judge and he will gladly make his own defense. Allow me to paraphrase. Felix, I've been here for about 12 days, seven of which have been in chains. That's hardly enough time to start riots. And in that time, yeah, I've been to the temple to worship where there have been no arguments, no riots, no issues at all. Yes, I am a Christian. But I believe in the same law that they do and I have the same hope as them based on the same God. I do, I try to do good and I act with a clear conscience. I've been away for a few years and I came back to give gifts to the poor and present offerings for worship at the temple. That's where they found me, not with crowds, not causing trouble. My motives, Felix, are hardly to come to Jerusalem to start riots, nor is that what I was doing. And on top of that, where are my accusers? The Roman law gives rights to stand before the accuser. And yet none of the people who were at the temple are here today. In fact, the one thing I am here for is because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead and how I spoke about it during the last trial. A trial which ended up with them fighting amongst themselves. In reality, it would have been 
really quite easy for Felix to see the truth. There was only one claim they would have actually been interested in. That Paul was in Jerusalem starting an insurrection against Rome. In five days, that would have been impossible. Particularly considering that he would have spent most of his time in the temple, and that could have been verified, and that in the temple there were plaintiffs, people controlling the environment. They would have reported any seditious behavior, and they hadn't. And they would have at least been here at the trial as witnesses, and they weren't. But what is Paul's chief defense against all these accusations and twisted claims? To be honest, to be upright, and to act with goodness. Paul knows that his message is an offense to people. It always will be. And if it isn't, he and uh, and we have sugarcoated it and are not doing it justice. He knows that the gospel is an offense, but that he can't be. Paul was at Jerusalem to worship, to give to the poor, showing God's compassion. And these two things will always lead to God's gospel being vindicated. He's a rioter, they say. Actually, he's in the temple peacefully in reality. He's a troublemaker, they say. Actually, he's in Jerusalem to give gifts to the poor. He tried to desecrate the temple, they say. He was there worshipping God and giving offerings. The actions of Paul speak for themselves, speak for the gospel, and to an experienced judge, it was easy to see into his character and through their lies. But imagine if he had been guilty. Imagine if he had spoken harsh words. Imagine if he had caused some trouble. What would that have done to the message of the Nazarene Lord? It would have undermined it. It would have spoken against the gospel, shown this leader of the church to be a hypocritical leader. Praise God, that's not who Paul was. But am I? I believe that there is nothing that undermines the gospel more than a hypocritical Christian. I believe that there are few things that can stand in the way of salvation more than a believer whose actions and words do not match. And that's the challenge for me as I review my life, as I think this week about how I've dealt with people, how I've spoken to others, how I've given of myself to people in need, how I've dealt either openly or privately, have I, do I undermine the gospel that I love this message of grace, of love, of forgiveness? Or do I push it forwards? Do I underline it? Do I stoke the fire of it? Do I help it on its way? The gospel message is at its core offensive for those who do not believe it. The messenger cannot be. Paul is clear about what he believes. And he doesn't intend to shy away from it. Yes, I worship the God of the Old Testament, he says. I'm a follower of the Nazarene they call Jesus, though I don't exactly call it a sect. I I follow the law. I believe what the prophets taught. And beyond this, I believe fully that all men shall shall be resurrected regardless of the standard of their life, to stand before God. The Jewish believers had tried to suggest that these, uh, the followers of Jesus were some kind of Jewish sect, and they had no part with it. Paul is clear that his faith in the person of Jesus Christ is no sect, no branch of Judaism with some strange ideas. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. It completes the law. Jesus completes the law. He allows the resurrection that they were hoping for. He is the way. He is the only way. 
He's more than just some bizarre teacher. And they are more than just some group of weird followers that are soon going to die out. He, Jesus Christ, is the root to God, as the son of God. And they are the body of Jesus on earth. And in light of this, Paul continues to act in a way which clears his conscience before God while telling others of the way to God. And so what is Felix going to do? He can clearly see in the defense of Paul and in his character that, and he, he must know that he cannot find Paul guilty. But instead of making the bold decision to free him, he delays proceedings further by claiming that he wants to wait until the Roman commander Lysias arrives with more information. Why the delay? Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he says, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. She sent for Paul. So they, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul might offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. That seems unfair. Over two years in prison for doing nothing wrong. May I suggest four reasons why Paul was left where he was? You might come up with others. Yes, Felix was hoping that if he just left Paul in prison for long enough, either Paul or other Christians might give him a little bit of money, lie in the pocket for him to leave jail. There'd been quite a few influential con- conversions in Caesarea. A few important people had become Christians. Felix would probably have been aware of this. He might well have known that there was some money to be made to be extorted from this man's innocence. Sadly, that speaks volumes about the character of Felix. His love of material and irrelevant things on this earth. It shows where his heart really lies. He's more concerned about lining his pocket than the freedom of an innocent man. This is probably a plan that worked quite regularly, but not on this occasion. Knowing that his grasp on peace in the area was a little bit weak, I'm sure that Felix also thought, secondly, that he could appease the Jewish leaders by keeping him on side, by keeping Paul locked up. One man's freedom compared to the peace of the entire area probably seems like quite an easy choice. In reality, I have no doubt that Felix was thinking about his own reputation. If civil unrest was to, was to come up in the area, word would get back to Rome. How would that look about Felix? So let's keep Paul in prison. Thirdly, it's apparent that Felix actually does have a genuine interest in finding out more about this message that Paul has. Felix knows of the gospel. We're told in our past that he's well acquainted with the way, which is just a phrase that was used for the gospel message as well as probably having a good understanding of the Jewish faith. His wife, Drusilla, is a Jew. And he probably knew about a variety of other faiths and sects that had built up in the area. It would have been his job. His wife's actually quite an interesting person. 
Jewish historians note that she was sensationally beautiful. She was a descendant of Herod the Great and had been given in marriage when she was about 15 to a king of a minor province. Felix, this Roman governor, had shortly afterwards persuaded her away from her husband to marry him with the help of a magician from Cyprus. Records show that that she bore Felix a son named him Agrippa and that sadly both of them would ultimately perish when Vesuvius erupted in AD 78. She was a Jewish woman and most believe that she had been one of the main reasons for Felix to retain Paul in custody either to keep Paul out of uh, the general community or because she was interested in the message. But Felix himself does seem to want to know more. He seems convicted to understand more of this message of Paul's and to hear regularly about it. There's clearly a working of God's spirit in his heart as he hears of things which are very uncomfortable. They discuss righteousness. God's version of righteousness Not the version from the community around about. Not what he believed righteousness really meant. I suspect it wouldn't have taken long for them to come to the conclusion that Felix and his wife were far from righteous. They speak of self-control. Probably in regards to money, power, sex, food and alcohol. And this would have been really uncomfortable for Felix as well. Jewish historians record that Felix was a governor who threw himself into everything. Every immoral, every excess thing that he could find his hands, that he could identify, he'd have a good shot of it. And they talked about judgment to come. How challenging it would have been for him to hear that his actions would be discussed with the Almighty. His choices would be held up for him to see in light of God's righteousness. The gold will be kept the straw burned away. To hear of his failings, changes he needed to make, sins that would be answered for, punishment that would be received for sins that were not forgiven. These things scared Felix. And so they should. But it's the same need that we have today. Maybe it's the same need that you have sitting in this building on this Sunday morning. To be told that those things that you have done which are short of God's standard of perfection, are noted down and they will be accounted for. And if you have not yet asked God for forgiveness from your sins, that punishment that is due is and will be yours. The Bible is clear that punishment for sins is both eternal and horrendous. Sadly, some churches refuse now to speak and to preach of judgment to come. But Paul was clear on its importance and its vitality to speak to Felix about it. And so it's very important that we do as well. God cannot allow unrighteousness to be left unpunished. He cannot allow sins to be left unpunished. And hell will serve for that purpose. It is a place of everlasting and eternal damnation. It's a place where sins are punished. But praise God... Jesus has already taken the punishment. He bore it at Calvary. And therefore, no one actually needs to take the punishment for their sins. But God does demand our humble acceptance of this. Our genuine request for forgiveness and our willingness to to make Jesus central of our life again. 
a simple but genuine prayer to God asking for his forgiveness from our sins to save us and a real and genuine promise to turn from our old ways of sin and to place Jesus at the core of our life is all that God asks for. Sadly, Felix's response is the same as the response of many people today as well. Felix says, oh, hold on a second, that's enough for now. It's a bit inconvenient just now. I'm not ready for this just now. When it's a bit more convenient, I'll come and find you. Please believe me when I say the gospel is never a convenient message. It was never meant to be. It's vital. It's painful to hear. It's the matter of eternal life or eternal loss. But it never seems convenient. And if you're here today waiting for a time when it suddenly will seem convenient, you're wasting your time. It's never going to suddenly seem like a handy lifestyle change. If that's you, you've missed the point entirely. And believe me, the devil will make sure that you never find a convenient time for the gospel. The gospel is necessary for your soul. It changes your life. It challenges you and I to look at who we are compared to who God is. But it lovingly tells us of a God who loves you regardless of your sins, regardless of your faults, and it offers you forgiveness. But if you're waiting for it to be convenient, you'll wait your way all the way to judgment. I love that Paul isn't afraid to tell it as it is. All credit to him. This is a big player. Above Felix is Rome itself. Felix has the power to take his head or to set him free. But Paul knows his vices, knows his greed, knows his excesses, knows the buttons to push, and Paul is not bothered about tailoring the gospel to really hit home. Because this man Felix needs the gospel just like everybody else. And Paul is there to tell it as it is. That challenges me. When I consider my own personal evangelism, I know that I'm held back by fear. My willingness to put all into the gospel in every situation, in every possible opportunity to give and to speak of it regardless of whether it seems uncomfortable. I get scared. I start thinking, how will people react? Will they, will they think I'm weird? Will I miss something really important out? How will, they feel, how will I feel if they reject it? Will that mean that I failed? We never hear that Felix converted to Christianity. We never hear that he, he asked for forgiveness. We're never told that. And if that's the case, then today, 2,000 years on, he's suffering in hell for the choices he's made and for the sins he's committed. But Paul took his opportunity. Paul gave him every chance he possibly could. If he rejected the gospel, then that was Felix's choice. But Paul told it. People rejected the gospel from Jesus as well. Rejection should never put me off from telling all the people about how much they need my saviour and this gospel message. And so I challenge myself, and I hope that you challenge yourself too, thinking into this week, how intently am I going to be willing to tell people about Jesus? 
even when it feels awkward and hard and uncomfortable to me, because they need it. And I thank God for the example that was Paul's. It would have been easy to look at this whole situation, particularly knowing that Paul was never going to be released at the end of this trial, and to see the injustice, to to be angry at the outcome. But we have to reflect again that this is in God's hands. Why is Paul left in jail? It's because God wanted him there. If God wants Paul in jail, then that's where he'll be. If God wants Paul out of jail, then he'll do what he's done with other people in the past, and he'll just walk him out the front door. In jail, Paul is protected from people who might want him dead. He has many freedoms. He essentially has the freedom of a Roman citizen awaiting trial rather than an actual prisoner. He's the opportunity to preach to a powerful man and his wife and to all of the people that would have been around about him. He's going to have the opportunity to preach to the next governor, Festus. He's going to have the opportunity to take his message to a Jewish king, Agrippa. And most importantly, he's going to have the opportunity to take his message all the way to Rome. In chapter 23, the previous chapter, we read this. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And I absolutely believe and know that Paul had total faith that this is exactly what was going to happen. And if, it was, if this was the way for it to happen, then fine, so be it. He was happy for God to take the reign. And if that involved Paul staying in prison, if it fulfilled God's desires, then that was fine. Paul knew that he was going to end up in Rome just like he'd been promised. He maybe understood that ultimately this might lead to his death. He didn't care. Through all of the situations Paul faces and all of these trials and beatings and etc., he knows the truth and he lives out the truth. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And whatever Paul, wherever God places Paul, wherever, whatever court he finds himself in, whatever fist is being thrown at his face, whatever insult, whatever false accusation is railed against him, Paul defends the gospel with his life and with his word. Yes, it all seems very unfair on paper. It's quite uncomfortable reading at points. But what Ananias, Tertullus, Lysias, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Caesar himself, all failed to realize, and Paul knew all along, God is in control. God's always in control. He was there when Paul arrived at Jerusalem. He was there when Paul was taken in the temple. He was there during the trial in the Sanhedrin. He was there when men plotted against his life. He stays there when Paul sits in prison for another two years. There's a big picture. Paul's going to end up exactly where he's supposed to be at Rome, furthering the kingdom of God. And God's going to be there with him too. Now, I'm glad to see that none of you are in prison today. I don't know your circumstances, really. You don't know mine. And it's quite easy in this situation to say, yeah, but, but Rob, you don't, you don't understand my life. You don't know what I'm going through. It's pretty hard. There's some tough stuff going on just now. And I really am sorry about that. And if that is you today, then I really am sorry. I'd be more than happy to speak with you about it and to pray with you about it. Advice is not one of my strong points as it happens, but I'd be absolutely happy to speak with you. For others here, you might think, that's not me. Things are okay. Things are okay just now. 
And brilliant, excellent. But none of us knows what illness, what bereavement, what financial situation, what legal situation is just around the corner. And so as I finish this morning, all I can say to you, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, is what Paul would want to say himself. God is in control. And God loves and God cares for you. In Jeremiah 29, we read these famous words. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And Paul himself would say these words to you in Romans 9. Romans 9. We know that in all things God works for good for those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. But I know it's easier to say than it is to live through. But I would challenge you in your circumstances today or circumstances that might crop up in the future to look at the example of Paul who was willing to hand over the steering wheel of his life entirely to God and just say, whatever you need, I accept. Paul saw the end game. It was going to get very hard for him. And his worldly end was not going to be pleasant. But today, Paul is in the presence of his saviour. 2,000 years later, spending 2,000 years experiencing Jesus, being rewarded as a faithful servant by a God who is a faithful father. And he's got 2,000 years more to come. And then after that, and he's an eternity to spend appreciating God, loving his saviour and being loved by his saviour and ultimately resting on this one fact. God is in control. Allow me to pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you, and I just ask that you challenge us through your word. I thank you for the example that is Paul. And I do ask that you just speak to us and speak into our hearts and into our lives. Give to us whatever it is that we need. And I thank you that regardless of our circumstances, you are in control. And I just pray that each of us would be able just to give our lives over to you, whether in salvation this morning, asking for forgiveness from our sins, or just to make you center of our lives and just yielding our lives to you. Father, challenge us and be with us. May your spirit work in our lives. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.